I'd also like to welcome you to Lakeside. We're glad that you're here with us this morning. Um, we're here looking at the today in a series what the earliest followers of Jesus encountered as they try to live out his teaching and his priorities that he set for them. Uh, Jesus loved them well while he was with them. And one of the ways that he loved them well was as much as was possible, he tried to prepare them for what they would encounter in their own life. A lot of us just increasingly are suspicious of people always trying to sell us something. And so they make it sound like everything's going to be better if we just do this or if we just buy this. And that's so much of what's effective in marketing and advertising today that when you see a commercial, you not only see the product and get the information of how to buy it, but there's this subtle message in there that if you also get this, what comes with it is a great family life or a great experience or a great this or that. But if you only had this one thing, everything else would go better. And for many of us, we feel like we've also been given a false form of advertising as it relates to the Christian faith. Because that's how Jesus was presented to us. That if you just get Jesus in your life, then everything else is going to go great. And you won't experience anymore the brokenness of this world, the suffering of sin, the realities of disease or a broken relationship, that all those things are there. But if you just get Jesus, then none of those things will happen. And so we feel like someone did a bait and switch on us when it came even to the specifics of our faith. And maybe somebody did, but Jesus didn't. Jesus, as much as he could with his disciples, regularly prepared them for the realities that they would face, even though they were followers of his, and actually sometimes because they were followers of his. He said to them, coming after me, it's going to require denying yourself, taking up a cross, and following me on a daily basis. There's going to be an aspect of things that you want and desire that you're going to have to say no to, and then things that you don't want. No one wants a cross, but there's going to be times where that, that is not just going to be times. He said it's going to be a daily occurrence that you're going to take a cross in following after me. Those are just realities that you're going to have to deal with. And he he prepared them. He said, the world hated me. They persecuted me. They're going to do that to you as well. And I want you to know that before I'm gone, that what's happening to me is going to happen to you. And so as much as he could, he tried to lovingly prepare them in advance for the trials and the sufferings that they would experience and the difficulties that they would have with one another. Because if he could adequately prepare them for those things, then when those situations arose, rather than driving them further away from God and further away from each other, it would be confirmation of the very things that God said and it would draw them closer to God and closer to each other. So we're in Acts chapter 12 today and if if Jesus had promised all of his followers that if they just came after him and if they just did everything he did that everything would go easy there would be no more verses in the New Testament after Acts chapter 12. Because at this point, there would now be sufficient evidence that life has not gotten easier, or in some cases better, because of following after Jesus. And they just would have got together and said, well, I don't know who you heard it from, but you passed it on to me, and we all got tricked. This is a big, giant Ponzi scheme, and it's over. There's actually nothing real behind it. But Acts chapter 12 
does not mark the end of the church. We're here 2,000 years later precisely because Jesus prepared his people in advance for what they would experience that we're going to read about described in Acts chapter 12 so that it did in fact only draw them closer to God and closer to each other. And that's our task as believers today to as much as possible make sure we have our expectations right and that we're not trying to sell anything to anyone. We're not trying to deny any realities that exist. We're open about them. We're honest about them. We face them head on. And if we are prepared for them, then when they come into our way, hopefully they will draw us closer to God and closer to one another. And so I invite you to go to Acts chapter 12 to see how this is playing out in the life of the earliest followers of Jesus. This is on page 920 if you're using one of the Bibles provided for you. Last week we had heard about a church in Antioch, a city way north of Jerusalem that had grown from a small Jewish sect to a very multicultural congregation and became a a, a healthy, vibrant church that started the missionary endeavors of the first believers. But part of its growth was because there was persecution in Jerusalem. And so people fled Jerusalem and Antioch was one of the cities they found a new home in. And so now Luke is saying... Now, after I told you all that stuff about Antioch and what a great church it is in Antioch and all the things that are going on, don't forget about Jerusalem. (laughs) Let me tell you, not everybody left Jerusalem. There were still people there and the persecution was still going on. And so let me tell you about the believers in Jerusalem. And so here we are in verse one of chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He didn't know that what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And recognizing Peter's voice in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. And they said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. 
But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison, and he said, Tell these things to James and to the brothers. And then he departed and went to another place. Now when day had come, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. And after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries in order that they should be put to death. And then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. And that's where we'll stop for today. So as we leave Antioch and come back to Jerusalem we see that this is a church that is very much in the valley of the shadow of death, to borrow the phrase from Psalm 23. There's a leader in charge. It's festival time. And so even some of the people that might have left Jerusalem as their home and now lived in other cities would have still, for many of the earliest followers of Jesus who were Jewish in background, at festival time, they still would have gone back to Jerusalem to observe the festivals. So we have the people that are sort of permanently in Jerusalem, but this was always a high charge time where lots of people visited Jerusalem from all over the place. And one of the responsibilities of the leaders like Herod was to make sure that as all these people were gathered together, that no kind of revolution would start, no, no revolt against Rome would begin while all of these people were together. And that was some of the very dynamics of 10 years earlier when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Feast of the Unleavened Bread at the time of the Passover, and he's claiming to be the king of the Jews, and so that's creating all kinds of controversy. So this week was always an incredibly high-pressure time because this nation would get together and in part be celebrating their Independence Day, remembering their freedom from Egypt, but they weren't free anymore. And so it always provided an opportunity for somebody to stand up and say, if you follow me, we can be free again. So not only Jews came back to Jerusalem, but other political leaders were there and always trying to make sure that they were keeping rap on things. And Herod, getting some wind of controversy that is still persisting, this name of Jesus has not disappeared even after all these years, and there's debates now happening among the Jewish people, he executes the leader of the church in Jerusalem, James, the brother of John. And then it says, when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. And then there's a bit of a pause, partly because of the festival, but all implications are that he intends to do to Peter exactly what he had done to James. And so that's why I say this is a church that is very much experiencing life in the valley of the shadow of death. And so those who could gathered together in a home of a woman named Mary, the mother of John Mark, sister to Barnabas, and they're having an earnest prayer meeting, an intense and passionate prayer meeting as they're gathered together and one of their leaders has already been killed and the other one is in prison and everyone's expecting that the very same thing might happen. And so that's where they are in this prayer meeting. That's the dynamic that they're experiencing. 
that if, again, they thought, oh, if we just follow Jesus, if we just take his command seriously, everything gets easier, everything in an earthly sense automatically gets better, then someone's sitting around in the prayer meeting saying, whoa, people, <laughs> this isn't working out for us. But Jesus prepared them ahead of time to say to them, the world rejected me, they're going to reject you. I suffered, there's going to be a sense in which you suffer as well. And so they are praying passionately, but still together as a group of people, even though they're in this valley. Even though there's a ruler who's in charge that doesn't seek justice or wisdom or any kind of fairness. He's violent. And if his violence makes some people happy, he's willing to be even more violent. But they realize that. They recognize that. And they stay together in it, even though they're in the midst of this valley. And all those realities remain, no matter what it is that we actually believe. They're just the realities that life is unfair sometimes. Sometimes people get into positions of power that have no business being in positions of power. Instead of accepting the responsibility that comes with that power, they abuse that power. And Herod is one of those people. He's an example of systemic injustice. He should not be ruling like he is. And yet, because he's in charge, no one can really stop him. There's not much recourse that anyone has or any group of people have to get him out of power because he controls all the means of power. All the soldiers, all the police report to him. And so he can direct them in the way that he wants. And sometimes when we think about the realities of injustice in the world, the realities of brokenness and the realities of death, it can be those very situations that arrest us and cause us to really, really question our faith. I mean, there's eventually that point in your own life where you come to this realization, and it all happens for us at different ages, but you don't have to get very, very old before you come to that realization that one day I will die. One day, I, I don't, you don't know when, you don't know how, but you just come to this arresting realization that just like your life had a beginning, your life had an end. It's going to have an end. And for some of us, some of the biggest fears at any moment that we can come up with is thinking about the possibility that someone we love might die. And yet the reality is that everyone we love will die. Everyone we love and us included, are going to experience that kind of reality in some way we know not when or how. And it's actually precisely that reality that then gives meaning when thinking that through and yet saying, in the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, actually begins to mean something. It's, it's actually the very foundation upon which Christianity makes sense, that Jesus came into the world because it was broken, because people die, because there is disease, because there is decay, and said, if, we don't, if there isn't a solution or a hope beyond the grave, then there isn't hope. If there is not someone who is able to overcome the world and overcome the grave, and overcome death itself, 
then we're all, no matter what our background is, no matter what we might attain in the short span of time that we have, we're all basically in the same boat. But if there is someone who came and who demonstrated in his death and then his rising again to new life that death is not the end of the story, then death, instead of being the thing that causes us to run away from God and to run away from other people and say, well, I don't like the fact that I might lose people and so I'm just going to close off from people and I'm not going to love them and I'm not going to embrace them because I don't, I don't want to experience the pain of when they're gone, which is one of the options to us when we really think through the reality of what it might mean to lose someone is just to kind of close ourselves off. So I'm sick and tired of getting burned by either people moving away or people doing this to me and so I'm just not going to invest in relationships with people. But if we prepare ourselves ahead of time that that is a part of the reality of this broken world and that is some of the very things that Jesus came into this world to address in his own death, life, and then resurrection. We have a way when we consider all of the facts to still smile and to have joy in spite of that. To have joy that we have someone who gives us hope beyond the grave. And that's what the church has. And we didn't read the very end of the chapter, but in verses 20 through 25, we see that Herod eventually meets his end. This ruler who's in charge, who's abusing his power and has no business being in charge, he eventually himself passes away. And so in this chapter, you have the leader of the church who passes away and then this, this governor who passes away. So that reality comes on both of them. But one of them has hope beyond the grave and the other one doesn't. One of them has hope beyond the grave, and the other one doesn't. And the church, as a community of people, live out that they have this hope that transcends the darkness of this world and the brokenness of this world. They stand up and they say, I will fear no evil which I don't think is a way of saying that they had no anxiety issues. (laughs) That their feelings, you know, if you could check their blood pressure in this prayer meeting, everyone was just happy. I mean, they were sitting back and, and they were just all relaxed as they were sitting there praying for Peter. No. Saying I will fear no evil is not to say my emotions will always be in check, my feelings will always be calm. But it is a way of saying I will not allow the reality of evil to change the things that I am committed to and the things that I believe. So I see it, I take stock in it. All of these things are possible. There is this evil in the world. We've already lost one leader in the church. There's another one in prison. But we will not allow those realities to fundamentally change what our commitments are and what we believe to be the most important things about life. We're still gonna get together and pray. We're still going to be there as a group of people for one another, in relationship for one another. And it's quite a dramatic thing that happens for Peter as they're praying, as they're making earnest prayer for him while he's in this prison. And it lists all the ways in which he's guarded in this prison. That as you read through it, it only struck me this morning, even though I'd been looking at the passage all week, 
There is so much here that is reminiscent that hopefully for most people around reminded them of Jesus himself. That here's this person who's taken away, locked away, guarded for a period of days and then is seen on the other side. For all intent and purposes in the minds of those earliest followers, they might not see Peter again. And he's been in that prison now for days. The only reason Herod is waiting is because of some of the dynamics of the festival. But he has in mind what he's going to do. And he puts as many guards and soldiers that he can put to make sure that nothing deviates from his plan. And yet God sends in the middle of the night while he is chained to guards. I mean, he's laying down asleep, chained next to two guards. And God comes and intervenes in that moment. And so Peter's not awake and praying for intervention. <laughs> he's sleeping. And God comes and says, I will wake you up. And that's actually one of those reminders that God has put just in the course of our own everyday experience. Every day, you're supposed to, if you avoid it, you get in trouble pretty quick and you don't usually go more than two days. You lay down to go to sleep. And it is, in in so many ways, a picture of death that you lay down And time passes and you have no idea how much time passed and you don't know what happened while you were laying down. And then you rise again. That there is something after that. There is a possibility of more. And here's Peter laying down, guarded as much as humanly possible. And God sends an angel to dramatically intervene and set him free. And the moment that guard gets him out to where he's now on the street, the angel leaves him. And then he has to go to this house where this prayer meeting is going on. He's knocking on the door and someone hears his voice and the person so excited in hearing his voice doesn't then go open the door for him. She runs back inside to tell everybody, he's here. And they don't believe her. They're gathered together praying for him. And when someone comes to tell them that their prayers have been heard and answered, they struggle to believe it. Well, I think that's true of most of the things I pray for. <laughs> that if, if I really saw it like that quickly answered, I'd say, well, no, I'm, that, that can't be. Well, why did you pray for it if you didn't believe that that might be possible, that that could happen? but they're human. They struggle. They said, no, it can't be. And they have this back and forth. I can't be his angel. And so motioning, finally, they get someone to go. And yet Peter is still, he motions to them for all of them to be silent. He explains to them what happened. And then he leaves and we don't know where he goes. And here again is a great tension. He's just been dramatically rescued by God. But he doesn't say, he doesn't just run around yelling and run around making dumb decisions and, oh, I don't care who knows where I am. I mean, I was just laying between two guards and God intervened. He still has a sense of wisdom and he wants to protect the church and he doesn't want them to get in trouble. So he shares briefly with them what's happened. He wants them to go to the other house church that would be meeting and to let them know 
what's happened and to let James know, the brother of Jesus, precisely what's happened because he's going to be one of the ones who stays in Jerusalem to continue the work in this church. He's going to stay in this city where the persecution is happening, where the other James was killed. And so he needs some encouragement to do that. He needs to know that there are ways in which God is present for him and will watch over him and will sustain him and that he can know that he is committing to something that though there's tremendous risk and though he might experience what the other James experienced, his life, his heart, his soul is entrusted to one for whom death is not the end. And God always has a plan that is bigger and larger than any of our lives can represent. And we look at it and we'd say, you know, why why did James, the brother of John, have to go this way, but Peter got rescued? And it doesn't answer that for us. But part of not answering it is also to make clear it's not because Peter was better than James. It's not because he was more necessary than James. We don't know. When we come to the pages of scripture, it tells us about the dynamics that we experience in life and the realities we have to face, but it doesn't answer for us every single question that we might be able to come up with to say, well, why did this happen and why did it have to happen that way? But what it does make clear is that when our hope is in God, James himself, who lost his life, has eternal life. And that Peter, who was rescued, will have eternal life. And that now, James, the brother of Jesus, who takes charge with all of the possible danger that exists, has hope that transcends the evil of this world. It's it's fascinating. One, One of the reasons why I say that this isn't an issue of feelings, but it's of actions, and that the believer still maintained a commitment to their priorities in spite of this if you turn with me to we'll go to first peter first peter chapter two because i want to show you now decades later peter writing a letter to churches and then james the brother of jesus writing a letter to churches and we see exactly what we mean by this statement i will fear no evil they don't allow their experiences And all of the potential danger to change their core commitments and beliefs. So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13 to 17. Peter says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, this would be a great time for him to put a footnote somewhere that says, unless the leader or the governor or the emperor is like Herod Agrippa. Because, I mean, you almost read it. When he says, 
the governors who have been sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. If anyone knows experientially that that is not always what happens, it's Peter. Because there was Jesus who had done nothing wrong, who had committed no evil, who was declared innocent in his trial, and he was put to death. And then there's James, who had done nothing wrong, who had committed no evil, and the governor put him to death. That Peter would then say, it's not that he has amnesia here in these experiences, but he can still recognize that there is a God-given place for authority in this world, and that there is a proper way to respond to that authority, even when that authority has gone awry. And he doesn't change what he believes about that and what he tells the church, even though he's experienced the abuse of that authority. He he still tells them to honor everyone. It is one of those distinct possibilities as a Christian that you can say, I am not necessarily opposed to those that are opposed to me. I'm not necessarily angry or hateful towards those who might be angry or hateful toward me. That if I've been prepared ahead of time to know that opposition is going to come and that there are people in this world that don't have hope beyond the grave and they live that out in all kinds of ways that are abusive and unhelpful and I can say that about them, I can realize they're not really against me. And I can find ways to even still desire their good to pray for them, as Jesus said, and to do acts of kindness towards them because I don't have to be opposed to everyone who might be opposed to me. I don't have to hate everyone who hates me. Then the book just before this, written by James in chapter five. So if you just turn backwards one page, on page 1013, here's what James says about prayer. chapter 5 and verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. And so confess your sins one to another. Pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power at its working. So here again, we'll stop. Here's James writing. And he's experienced in his life and he's seen it up close and personal. Plenty of times where prayer did not exactly work out the way he would have desired. Whether it was prayer for the protection of the other James, the brother of John, or other people who were suffering or persecution that was going on. But when he says, I will fear no evil, he's able to say, I will not give up on prayer. I will not stop praying, even though every prayer might not necessarily happen in the way I desire. I do believe God can radically intervene. I do believe that Peter can be released from prison, even though he's guarded by Tons of guards. I believe that. And I won't stop praying for those kinds of things, even though I recognize God is God. He doesn't have to do what I say. 
but he does invite me to still bring all of my requests to him, to come to him and to pray and to ask at times that that kind of suffering be alleviated, that there be good news that keeps us going. And so both Peter and James, a long time after this sort of traumatic experience of Acts chapter 12, are both able to reflect upon it and still be committed to their calling in the church and all the trials that they've had and that no amount of opposition, no amount of persecution, no amount of suffering has gotten them to to go off track on the things that matter most to them, of who God is, what he makes available to them. And then in that promise, in that psalm, is that in the valley of the shadow of death, we can fear no evil because God is with us. Because he is with us. And the way they experienced that here, for Peter, in his situation, it was so unique. It required the intervention of an angel to get him out of his situation. And for the believers that weren't in prison, they experienced God's presence through one another, together in a house, praying for one another. But God was with them. He was with those in the prayer meeting, and he was with Peter, who was all alone, and he was with James, the moment James entered into glory. That's the God that we serve. He was with all of them in the different situations they faced. And that's one of the wonderful and amazing things that we believe. That's how God introduced himself to the people of Israel when Moses said, you know, you want me to go tell these people that you're going to rescue them. When, I, when they ask me, who sent me? What should I say? And God said to him, tell them, I am that I am has sent you which is covenantal language that isn't really specifically a name, but it's a description of faithfulness to say, tell them that I will be whatever they need me to be to make this happen. I'm going to do whatever I have to do to bring out the ends that I desire. I will rescue them. I will save them. And we need to hear that today, that God can be everything we need him to be when we need him to be that. Sometimes people will always say the phrase, I just know that God won't give me any more than I can handle. And the reality is, when we really think about some of the possibilities of this world and the reality of evil in it, there are all kinds of things we can't handle. We can't. But what God promises is to give us what we need for whatever it is that comes into our path. So that if in your mind say, well, I know I wouldn't be able to handle this. Okay, maybe you can't. Actually, of course you can't. That might be the first honest thing you said today. (laughs) Do you believe that God could give you what you need And that he could be present to you in such a way that in that moment you know he's real in a way you never did before and something about it doesn't make sense because you're going through one of the most difficult things you've ever gone through. In the prayer meeting, they didn't get the angel. Right? They had each other. They were together. They didn't have this dramatic angel come and intervene and say, let me join the prayer meeting with you. They had one another. They had a relative period of safety. Peter, all alone, not sure what's going to happen, gets this 
if you will, extra sense of God's presence. And that's one of the things that we can believe, that for people, as they go through extra trials, more difficult situations, that our God is able, through his spirit, to sustain them in ways that we can't even fully know or understand. And then to believe going forward into the future that he can do that in my life. He can give me whatever it is I need. And he promises to be with me whatever it is I face. Well, that's very different than the promise that everything's going to go well and everything's going to be easy and everything's going to... No, no, no. What he's promised is that no matter what comes, he will be with me. He will sustain me. And that justice is not limited to what happens in this life. That's great news. He is able to bring things together in such a way that this isn't all there is. And he proved that in sending his son into the world, making it clear that that son died and was dead and then rose again from the dead and said to everyone, see, when you, when you look at all that, don't run from me, run to me. Because I can give you hope for those realities as well. That I'll always be with you. And that in those moments you can stand up and though you've considered all the facts, just like that early church, that in Acts chapter 12, they didn't end. They didn't didn't stop doing what they were doing. They committed themselves all the more to it. They committed themselves all the more to loving God, to loving each other, and to spreading this message to as many people as possible. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the presence of your spirit that is with us, that was with James in his martyrdom, that was with Peter in his rescue from prison, that was with Mary and John Mark and all those who were gathered in a home praying, praying for freedom, praying for protection. And we thank you that you can be just as present to all of us, even though we're going through so many different things. Father, only you can look into a congregation like this and see all of the different fears and doubts and questions and potential dangers and only you are capable of being sufficient to handle all of those things and so we pray that we would look up to you that we would draw closer to you and not run from you and that we would place our hope our confidence our trust squarely in you and we we need your grace to be able to do that to cast our cares upon you. And so we pray that you would give us that grace. In your son's name, amen.